Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello there. My name is Anne and I'm calling from the HSBC Fraud Investigation Team. We've noticed some unusual payments coming through your online banking today and I just wanted to check them through with you. It's a call that none of us want to receive. But back in April, 31-year-old Jenny picked up the phone to a very similar caller. And now, over three months later, she is still dealing with the fallout. The story begins with Jenny at home with her parents, enjoying the company of her new dog, Biddy. I wanted to buy like a really nice set that I found on Etsy, which was like a collar, a harness and a lead that matched. The package was taking a while to arrive. And around that time, Jenny receives a text message from the Royal Mail. Saying like, you know, your parcel requires a delivery charge of 199 Please click this link in order to pay. Jenny clicks on the link in the message and enters her card details to pay the fee. A couple of days later, her polka dot dog set gets delivered, and a few days after that, she receives a phone call. It was HSBC, the fraud team, telling me that um, that link that I clicked on for the Royal Mail was a scam, and that someone's tried to use my card to pay for things person on the phone runs through some unusual payments on her card. Did you spend this amount on that in car phone warehouse? And I was like, no, no. And they're like, okay. They sound professional. At one point, they even transfer her call over to a colleague. And while they did that, like, I had to wait, you know, like the way you do when you're talking to banks on the phone. They put me on hold and played the music that HSBC play. And then they say to her. So what we need to do now is like, we, because... This scammer's got like access to your savings and things like that. You need to transfer your money into a safe account. Over the phone, the caller begins to walk Jenny through transferring her money to the safe account. As warning messages pop up on her online banking, she gets the feeling that something could be a little off. I mean, I said, you know, how do I know that you're HSBC? I'm not sure how I feel about this. And they were like, okay, you know, well done for being cautious. It's good to check these things. They told her to Google the caller ID to check it was the same as the official HSBC telephone number. And it was the number of the HSBC fraud team specifically. So after I checked that, I was like, okay, that's fine. Reassured, Jenny moves her savings, current account balance and overdraft balance into this safe account. The caller then warns Jenny that the person who's gotten hold of her card details is applying for credit in her name. So they said the only way to stop this is by applying for a loan yourself? Because that would prevent anyone else from getting credit in her name. The loan, they promise, will be cancelled straight away. So in total, Jenny, how much money did the fraudster steal from you? In total, it's about £17,000. 
So including the savings and then the loan and then the overdraft. After the call ended, I... So I was worried about this. I was kind of like, you know, oh God, I'm glad that that's okay now. I'm glad my money's safe. But I just want to check just to be safe that this was a real thing that HSBC did. Jenny called back on the same number that had flashed up on her phone display, but this time she was actually talking to the genuine fraud team at her bank. And they said, no, we don't do that. You've been scammed. Welcome to a bonus episode of Money Clinic, the podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. In this episode, we'll be speaking to some of the UK's fraud experts about how to protect yourself from being scammed and how to get your money back if you are. You might think you're too smart to be taken in by a scammer, but during the pandemic, our whole lives have moved online and scammers have come up with inventive and highly convincing ways of posing as legitimate organisations in order to part us from our hard-earned cash. It could be from your mobile network provider, O2 or EE. Um, PayPal TV licensing from supermarkets, from different banks, or from delivery companies like um, Royal Mail. Number spoofing, where criminals appear to be calling or texting from a genuine phone number, is a common technique. Yet the first time Jenny ever heard that it was even possible was after she had been scammed. Bank fraud losses hit a record high in the UK in the past year. Around 150,000 people in the UK fell for this kind of scam in 2020, and nearly half a billion pounds were swindled from their accounts. However, less than 50% of the money stolen through fraud is ever returned to the victims. What we're finding is there are systemic problems in the way that banks are approaching reimbursement that's leading to really inconsistent outcomes and a real lack of support for victims of a crime. After being scammed, fraud victims face a second trauma, trying to recover what they've lost. This is where Jenny's story becomes a tale of two halves. Not only has she lost over £17,000 to this number-spoofing scam, she faces an uphill battle to get her money back. Immediately after the fraudulent phone call, Jenny says bank staff reassured her that she would be reimbursed and that the loan would be wiped. HSBC let Jenny withdraw some emergency cash to keep her going, but her finances were ruined. It gets worse. A couple of weeks later, around £500 left Jenny's account, the first repayment of that loan that the scammers had conned her into taking out. I was like, oh my God, I can't pay this loan. Like, I really need this loan to go. Now, too nervous to speak to her bank over the phone, Jenny makes multiple trips to her local branch, eventually receiving a letter stating that they would wipe the loan. They said this was a gesture of goodwill, um, which I found really odd because, you know, they'd said from the beginning that they would get rid of this loan and that I was not to worry. Even with the loan gone, Jenny had still lost over £11,000 from her savings and current account. But the letter also stated that HSBC would only reimburse £4,192 of this money. Because they're partially responsible, and I'm also responsible. 
Because Jenny, quote, winningly transferred money to the scanners despite those pop-up warnings, the bank finds her partly responsible for losing her money, a decision that has cost Jenny around £7,000. They've said, you know, we believe that you are liable for the payments in which you had warning show up during the transfers. Do you feel that as a victim of crime, your bank took that seriously? How awful you were feeling and how how destitute this had left you? With no money at all? No, I mean, I feel like the people who I spoke to face-to-face were very sympathetic. Um, but my correspondence with the bank through letters and through the complaints team, I mean, they've just made me feel like I was, you know, a lot more responsible for this than I actually was. They made me feel like, you know, I could have done more to stop this from happening. A spokesperson for HSBC UK told Money Clinic that what happened to Jenny was a complex case adding that the bank reviews every scam in line with industry guidance set to determine whether a customer has done enough to protect themselves from being a victim. Protecting customers from fraud is an absolute priority for us, and we're sorry to hear that Jenny has fallen victim to a scam. The spokesperson added, We encourage people to be on their guard, stay vigilant and informed, and to remember that we will never contact a customer via phone or text asking for a PIN or password or to move funds to a safe account. But this leaves Jenny with a costly dilemma. How could the experts help? Well, as you know, as it sounds like I'm still about £7,000 short, I'd like to find out more about how to get my money back. I'd like to know, like, how more people can avoid this thing like what to look out for when it comes to a scam if you think you are being scammed what should you do now our first expert is a seasoned campaigner my name's gareth shaw i'm the head of money at which you may have turned to which when on the hunt for a new tv or washing machine but the organization is also a great resource for no-nonsense money advice and they are fighting back on behalf of bank fraud victims. A big area for us over the last few years has been authorised push payment scams and the challenge that victims of this rising fraud have had trying to get their money back. Authorised push payments, that's when, like in Jenny's case, someone is duped into sending money over to a scammer. The challenge here has been that the victims of this crime because they have authorised the payment to that scammer, can't automatically get their money back. The rising number of cases has persuaded most UK banks to agree to a voluntary code, which should provide more protection for victims. If the bank has any culpability, if it hasn't met certain standards as well, you should automatically be reimbursed by your bank. If neither you nor your bank are to blame, it's called a no-blame situation, you should be reimbursed as well. But if you are deemed to have some culpability or even full culpability for sending money to a scammer, your bank will only give you a partial repayment or no reimbursement at all. And this is where things get a bit tricky. When is a victim of fraud to blame for falling for a scam? In Jenny's case, she has only been refunded a portion of the money she lost to the fraudsters. 
The bank's justification for that is that when she was transferring money to the scammers, she ignored pop-up warnings on her internet banking screen. You'll maybe have seen these warnings when you make an online transfer. They're often highlighted in red and will say things like, has somebody asked you to transfer money to their account? Be cautious. But if authorised push payments are on the rise despite these warnings, then are they really working? And are they enough of a defence to make the victim culpable? Often the banks can't evidence that the warnings they put up are effective through perhaps testing that they've done with their customers. So it's not good enough to say, well, we threw a pop-up at you. It needs to be tested and effective. You also got to take into consideration I think the banks are looking at this in a very black and white way. You went through the payment journey, you saw a warning, you ignored it, you transferred the money. In the meantime, the victim, it's not very black and white how they've got to this point. It's very nuanced. They've been coached through all of those hurdles that the bank is going to be put through them. Yes, you will see a warning, but ignore that because you're going through a special protocol or something like that. And what steps can someone in Jenny's position take if the bank decides on a partial reimbursement? she will need to raise a formal complaint about the decision that the bank has made on reimbursement. The bank has eight weeks to respond to that. If she's further dissatisfied by that outcome, she can escalate her complaint to the financial ombudsman. That's the body that mediates disputes between banks and consumers on cases such as these. You can find a link to their website in today's show notes. They can then go and investigate her case and see whether or not the bank has made the wrong decision. And if it deems that it has made the wrong decision, it can force the bank to make the full reimbursement, perhaps with interest on top. What are victims' chances if they do go to the trouble of taking their case to the ombudsman? Well, the current payout rate is 73% in the customer's favour, which suggests that the banks are getting this wrong three out of four times. 73% of cases. That is a whopping success rate for the victims of these crimes that doesn't reflect favourably on the way in which banks are treating victims of fraud. When I told Gareth about how the bank made Jenny feel she was responsible for sending over money to the fraudsters, he had a thing or two to say. That's really, really sad to hear. And unfortunately, it is a good demonstration of the devastating impact that a scam can have on people. Not just financial, it's not just about losing money, it's it's the mental and emotional toll of it. This victim blaming has to stop. My second expert today is a Money Clinic listener who got in touch after seeing a social media post I did about the scam Jenny has fallen victim to. It's not the first time actually that I've reached out to someone on Twitter, but it is the first time that someone's got back in touch. 30-year-old Stephen from the Wirral works for one of the UK's leading banks, dealing with the aftermath of fraud. Most recently, that's seen me looking at fraud investigations and fraud complaints that have been received. And so I've developed um, you know, a really good awareness of the different types of fraud and scams that take place, how they work and, and what people can do to protect themselves from those scams. Part of his work involves listening back through recordings of phone calls between victims of fraud and the bank's investigation team. Often when they call the bank, it's the first time that they realise they've fallen victim to a scam. So it can be quite distressing. And it's not just the financial impact it has, but it's the ongoing mental health impact it has on people. And on the other end of the spectrum, 
people can express suicidal thoughts or, you know, go the complete opposite way. So, yeah, it's quite harrowing. Being so aware of how awful falling victims of fraud can be is exactly why Stephen got in touch to spread the word about some of the most common tactics fraudsters use. Most of them, he says, fall under the bracket of social engineering, whereby fraudsters gather enough information about you to manipulate you into parting with your money. One of the ways they do this is through phishing. That's phishing with a PH. It's basically scammers looking for little bits of information about you. And it usually comes in the form of a text or an email. Exactly like the Royal Mail text message Jenny received. When you enter your card details into one of these phishing messages, it can give fraudsters all the information they need to call back at a later date and convince you they are your bank. If I fell for a phishing email and gave them my SOAR code, then the scammers would know one I bank with Santander, so they could contact me pretending to be from them. They could get the location of my branch. Or I think in the case of Jenny as well, they, they can give locations of transactions which are not near your location to convince you that maybe your card or your account's being compromised and somebody else is trying to make payments. So that text that Jenny thought was from the Royal Mail, that gave the scammers the kernel of information that they needed to sound credible. The key tactic fraudsters use to make phishing messages credible is spoofing. That's making a text, email or phone call look like it's coming from an official contact. So how can you spot a spoof? So I think the first thing to do is, is to check the actual email address or the phone number that you've received the text from and see if that's got any affiliation to the company that they're claiming to be from. Spelling mistakes are a dead giveaway that something's not right. And think twice before you click on a link. Assume that any message with a link asking for payment or your personal details is a con. A genuine Royal Mail text message or email should have the website as royalmail.co.uk or .com. Often what we see is it might be something like payyourfeeroyalmail.com. But it's not just emails and text contacts that can be faked. As was the case with Jenny's fraudulent HSBC call, it is the numbers of phone calls. Number spoofing is where criminals use software to change the caller ID to make it appear that they are calling from your bank or other organisations. But in an attempt to convince you that they are who they say they are, they'll offer to call back on a number, which usually for a bank fraud team impersonation scam would be the number on the back of your debit card. So they'll end the call and call you back from that number. And it's quite reasonable to believe that you're then dealing with a bank if it comes from that number, but that's not something that a genuine organisation would do. And the way that scammers are successful is by putting their victim into an emotional state that can impair their judgment. They'll instill such fear in people that they'll go along with what they're told for fear of losing the money or for fear of going to prison. And now a genuine organisation would never contact customer and try and put them under that sort of pressure. It's not just spoofing from banks you should be wary of. Scammers commonly pose as the police, the court system and HMRC, the UK's tax authority. As Stephen says, your bank will never ask you to transfer money to a safe account or holding account over the phone, nor will they ask you for your banking login information. No genuine organisation should do that. And I think if you're dealing with a genuine company, there's absolutely no problem with putting the phone down, putting the kettle on, taking a breather, and then ringing back and speaking to the, the company again. 
Stephen has three top tips for people to avoid being targeted by scammers. Firstly, check out your privacy settings on social media. If you publicly post that you maybe work for a certain company, or if you share where you've been on nights out to bars and stuff like that, that can give them enough information to socially engineer you. So they can call up and say, for example, oh, you were out in such and such a pub at the weekend, or I can see your wages coming in from this company. And that understandably could give someone the impression that they're actually dealing with a genuine member of the bank fraud team, for example. Secondly, be wary of responding to certain social media posts. You often see people post things such as, oh, what was your first pet called? Or what was the first car that you bought? And these are often answers to um, security questions that can be set. Finally, educate yourself on the scams that are out there. We've included links in the show notes to some useful websites that have up-to-date information on all the scams to look out for. And if you move from a reactive approach to being proactive and helping these people, you know, learn about scams and, and spot on the red flags, then I'd like to think that less people would fall victim to them and then suffer the financial and emotional hardship that goes with falling victim to a scam, essentially. Thanks so much to listener Stephen for getting in touch. If you feel you too could lend a hand as an expert, then get in touch with me on social media or email. All my details are in the show notes. After speaking to Stephen and Gareth, I wanted to catch up with Jenny and feed back to her what they had told me. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Have you got Biddy in the room? No, she's locked in the kitchen. Oh, <laughs> poor Biddy. Crying. But if she was here, she'd be chewing at all the wires. Oh, goodness. Well, Jenny, a lot of information there from our experts, Gareth and Stephen. What things stood out to you? Well, they were both actually saying exactly how I've been feeling since the scam, which is really nice because, you know, I kind of feel like stupid for like reacting in this way after the scam. But, you know, they were saying how, you know, so many victims have, you know, felt really depressed and really really stressed out and I guess that's you know it's nice to know that I'm not the only one that's reacted that way. (laughs) Making this podcast has reinforced your view that you think you've been badly treated by your bank and that you shouldn't have been considered partially responsible for what happened. Mm. You're still around £7,000 out of pocket as a result of their decision. Having listened to the experts about what you can do now what do you think you'll do? Well, I'm definitely going to write to the ombudsman. You know, it's good to know that it's 73% of the cases work in the victim's favour. And I think as well, like, you know, victim blaming needs to stop. The whole vocabulary in the bank's like correspondence with me has been like that, you know, I could have done more. And I don't know what I could have done more, you know, like I keep going over that in my head. So like I definitely, yeah, I definitely will be taking this to the ombudsman. What would you say, Jenny, to other people who are in a similar situation to you? They've been scammed. The bank has said you can't have all of the money back and are now beginning a fight to try and get Mm. more of it. I mean, I would say like just try not to blame yourself. Keep fighting, you know, like you're not... You're not to blame here, you know, you are the victim. 
that's what I would say. You know, you are the victim and don't forget that. You're fighting against, like, you know, these huge multinational banks who are telling you that you're basically, like, you don't have a case and that they are more powerful than you are. But I would still say, like, it's still worth challenging. It's still worth the challenge. Like, yeah, that's what I would say to people. That's it for our bonus episode of Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. And if you would like to chat with me on a future episode of the show, then email me. Our address is money at ft.com. You can also take a peek at our website, ft.com money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper, or follow me on Instagram at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love. Our executive producer is Howie Shannon. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. And the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here soon. Goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.